Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, I'm going to be answering your questions to help you out as much as I can in the world of personal finance and investing, specifically here in Canada. We're going to be focusing on actionable, practical advice, specifically for Canadians. So taking into account the investment options that we have here in Canada, factoring in our Canadian taxes to make sure that we're not overpaying and much more. Now, I've been trying to think of a way that I can help you by answering your questions without you having to hire me or pay me or anything like that. And so I figure these types of Q&A sessions might work well where you can submit a question and then they get answered on a future episode of the show. So please let me know what you think of this approach. I thought it'd be good to try it out. I do get hundreds of emails from the show, which is wonderful, but it also makes it impossible for me to reply to everyone one-on-one. So I do apologize if you sent me a message with a question in the past and I haven't replied. I just get too many of them and I've actually been feeling stressed and overwhelmed by it, to be honest, as I don't want to leave anyone hanging. And I do really appreciate you listening to the show. So I figure that perhaps a good middle ground where you can still get your questions answered and I don't get burned out by answering questions all day is to have these Q&A sessions periodically on the podcast. So let me know what you think of this approach. And if you would like to submit a question, the easiest way is to sign up anywhere for free over at Build Wealth canada.ca and when you do that you'll get taken to a page where you can leave a comment with your question also when you do that i'll email you my guide on the top personal finance and investing tools that i personally use and so at that point you'll have my email because i just sent you the guide and you can just reply to that email with your question and then i can work on incorporating it into a future episode on the show all right so i hope you sign up and submit your questions anywhere over at buildwealthcanada.ca and now let's get into the q a session All right. Our first question is from Mike up in Northern Canada. Mike has some passive total market index ETFs, and he could just continue being a passive index investor, but he is contemplating becoming more active on the investment side, maybe just for a portion of his portfolio so that he can hopefully beat the returns that his index ETFs are generating. Now, for anybody listening that's new to all this, let's first quickly define active versus passive. So when you are a more of a passive investor, whenever you hear me say that, I'm referring to you being an index investor. And so in this scenario, you are just trying to buy the market as a whole. You're not picking individual stocks. You're not trying to beat the market. And you typically do this with ETFs, specifically in Canada. This is the least expensive way to be able to purchase that because the fees, so the MER is extremely low on those. The most efficient way of buying it or the easiest way of buying it is through something called an asset allocation ETF. Essentially what that is, it it is an ETF. So it's think of it as a basket and that basket contains different ETFs. So I'll use ZEQT as an example, as I use that for my kids, RESP. And so in this case, ZEQT is just one ETF and that one ETF can literally make up your entire portfolio because it holds thousands and thousands of stocks within it. And so within that particular ETF, you have, like I said, individual ETFs. So you would have, for example, one representing the Canadian market, one representing the US market, one representing international emerging markets, one representing international developed markets. And a lot of these asset allocation ETFs also have a bond component in it. So ZEQT is a 100% equity ETF. So it has a higher expected return. However, it does tend to be more volatile than 
asset allocation ETFs that have some bonds in them as the bonds tend to lower the volatility. But I personally, I'm more of a all equity investor. So that is what I do as an example. All right. So that's on the passive side. Active would be you saying, I don't want to just buy the market because I feel I can pick and choose either the right fund manager, or you're saying I can do this myself. I can pick and choose the right stocks that are undervalued and I'm going to be able to beat the market by doing so. So one is very passive as in you can just buy the same ETF. For example, you can just buy ZEQT and have that literally be your entire portfolio and that's fine. Or you can actually go active and spend many potentially hundreds of hours trying to be the next Warren Buffett where you are trying to beat the market by picking the most undervalued stocks. Okay. So that's like a little primer. Sorry if you're already advanced and you already know all this, but I do want to make the show friendly to beginner investors, but also get into the weeds for the more advanced investors as well. So thanks for bearing with me there as I go through those definitions. The definitions are important. So there are pros and cons to each approach. There's pros and cons to the passive approach, pros and cons to the active approach. The ETF route is, of course, like I said, very passive and it lets you take more of a set it and forget it approach. It's not totally hands-off as you still have to rebalance and you still have to reinvest the dividend. But I would say it's as passive as you can get when it comes to investing. So when we hear online or through different media channels saying passive income, making money while you sleep, that kind of a thing, I would argue that something like an asset allocation ETF, because it automatically rebalances for you as well, is as passive income as one can get. You know, you'll hear people say, oh, get passive income by writing a book or things of that nature. Yeah, but you still have to put all that work up front, potentially spending hundreds of hours building a business or whatever, and then maybe you'll generate some passive income, hopefully. But with ETFs, especially if you're buying asset allocation ETFs, to me, that's as passive as one can get, especially compared to something like real estate. I used to be a real estate investor, used to be a landlord, and I can definitely tell you no matter how you do it, that's definitely not as passive as just getting something like an asset allocation ETF. So did want to point that out because there's, like I said, pros and cons. Now, this index investing approach, it's great for people who want their investments on autopilot and or don't particularly enjoy looking into and analyzing companies to determine if they are a good investment. So in other words, with this route, the amount of time you spend on actual investing is very limited compared to a more active investing approach. And now full disclosure, this is what I do personally. I don't find it fun to analyze companies and try to pick the winners, try to find undervalued stocks. It's just not my thing. I would rather just be a passive investor and then go live my life, go mountain biking, play with my kids. That's more my cup of tea. But to each his own. Some people just love trying to analyze the companies and using fancy tools and looking at all the different ratios. And hey, to each his or her own, whatever you want to do, but just wanted to disclose that that's personally how I invest. I go, I'm basically a purist when it comes to passive index investing. And yeah, there are many people that absolutely love it and it can be fun and profitable if done right. But of course, there's no guarantees. And so you are risking every time you want to go into that more active approach. I would say a lot more than if you just do passive. Now, the negative with the passive approach is that you might be leaving some money on the table if it turns out that your stock pick ends up doing quite well, that you end up beating the index, for example. Now, if I was to ever invest in individual stocks, the approach that I would take is to learn how to buy companies that are undervalued. A lot of times, at least in Canada, these would be small cap or maybe mid cap companies as those aren't as closely followed by the industry. And so there's actually some more opportunity than these large cap companies that are followed very closely by everyone. Now, if I did 
study this and learn how to become a good active investor. And I learn how to spot undervalued companies that I'm basically getting on sale because they're actually worth a lot more than what their stock is currently selling for. Then I would hold them long-term unless something fundamentally changed at the company. For example, the reason that you first invested in that company no longer exists. If that reason went away because maybe they decided to change their direction or some assumption I made that was critical no longer applies, then I would potentially sell that company because the reason I invested in the first place is no longer the reason that exists today. So that's how I would personally do it if I was ever to go to that active investing route. It is very difficult to make money long-term on a sustainable basis when doing something like day trading or if you're constantly jumping in and out of stocks, being a very active trader. And I'll give you some really good advice that I got from someone that's been in the industry for decades at this point. So I used to work at Five Eye Research, Canadian Money Saver, uh, and the owner of those companies is Peter Hudson. And he, I've interviewed him on the show before, and he at one point ran one of, if not the biggest hedge fund in Canada. And so someone that I respect highly, many decades of experience, knows what he's talking about. And when I was working with him at his company, one of the things he told me that really stuck out to me is that he told me that at that point, he only really knew one day trader that was able to consistently actually win and come out on top. So I found that really fascinating because you'll see a lot of things online, people talking about things like day trading and get rich quick, that kind of the thing, just use the software, press a few numbers and you will do amazing. And that's not really true. So here's someone that has been in the industry for decades, obviously has a lot of contacts in the space. If he's at the top of his game, he knows other people that are also at the top of their game. And even with all that, there was only one person that was able to do it. So I did want to mention that because... It can be tempting to see some of these ads or these YouTube videos or podcasts, people claiming that this is easy, you should do day trading or just buy our software and you'll be rich in months or whatever. It's not that simple. And so be very careful to not be lured by that because a lot of times these people that are trying to lure you into that are really just trying to sell you something. So just please, please be careful, okay? All right, so the trade-off between active versus passive comes down to Do you want something passive that may result in your returns not being as high as an active investor? Or do you want something more active where there is the potential to beat the market and earn above average returns, but you actually have to work on it and there is no guarantee. So you could totally lose your shirt if you make too many mistakes by being an active investor. Is this active investing going to be a craft that you choose to master and potentially sink countless of hours into because you love it? Or would you rather just be an index investor, not worry about placing bets on any particular company, and that way you can go pursue other hobbies and passions? So for me personally, I would rather just be a passive index investor, and then I can go mountain biking, I can go play with my kids, I can go live my life. That's my cup of tea. That's something that I like to do, but to each his own. And if this is something that you're truly passionate about, the active investing side, then yeah, I could see that being a lucrative hobby. Lots of people have made money on it, but just don't fool yourself to thinking that this is some easy thing that you can just do working on it one hour a month, for example, and then you're going to beat all these index investors. It's not that easy. And anyone that tells you it's that easy, I can almost guarantee that they're trying to sell you something or that there's some kind of conflict of interest in place.
Now, keep in mind that you don't have to go all in on one approach or the other. What some people do, for example, is they put something like 10% of their portfolio in active investing and the remaining 90% in passive ETFs that mimic the index. So you're basically just an index investor, 90% of your portfolio is in that. So you're not betting the farm on your active investing skills and you're just using that 10% because it's fun. You want to try it out. You want some skin in the game, that kind of a thing. You could technically try to be active investor for free, even by not actually investing, by just replacing the bets, but not actually using real money just on a spreadsheet or something to see if you're good at it. But some people like to have some money, some skin in the game. And again, to each his own. Now, this way, if you do this sort of hybrid approach where you're mostly passive, but you have an active component in your portfolio, you get a bit of both worlds without fully experiencing the negatives of going all in on any single approach. Now, if I was to get into active investing, that would be where I would start. I would do something like maybe 10% to get my feet wet, see how I like that style, and then decide from there if I want to increase or decrease that percentage. Maybe I want to do more than 10% inactive. Maybe I want to do less. Again, it's a judgment call. Like I said, me personally, I'm a purist when it comes to passive index investing. I'd rather do other things. As much as I love investing and financial planning and things of that nature, I don't want to be researching individual companies or individual funds and trying to pick and choose ones so I can beat the index. That's just not my cup of tea. Take that as you will. But again, some people love this and are very passionate about it. And who am I to say that you should not pursue your passions if active investing is your thing? Okay. It's important to mention that there is a lot of evidence out there showing how incredibly difficult it is for active funds to be the index. So i.e. by just going with a passive index ETF approach. A very good and reputable site that shows this is SPIVA, S-P-I-V-A. It's created by S&P Dow Jones. Now, this isn't because it is extremely unlikely for anybody to beat the index. The reason most funds can't beat the index and what the SPIVA reports show is that after the fees are included, it is extremely rare for funds to be the index. And this is because if a mutual fund charges you, let's say, 2.5% fee as the MER, then that means that the fund must beat the market by that 2.5% just to break even. In other words, it needs to achieve that just to match the performance of the index. So they are essentially fighting an uphill battle because in order to make an active fund worthwhile for the investor, it has to beat the market after these fees are applied. And that's why if you're trying to be an active investor and you're trying to pick active funds, it's it's an uphill battle. It's very, very difficult to win and pick those winners because you have to offset these giant fees. Now, one thing that's really neat is that not the previous episode, but the one before that, I actually got to interview S&P Dow Jones and I got to interview them about these SPIVA reports. So if you want to dive into this a little bit more and learn more about the research and the methodology and how they do it and what the conclusions were, and probably most importantly, what the lessons are from this analysis that they did that you can then apply to your own life, to your own investments, definitely check out that episode. I will link for it in the show notes and in the description when this podcast is on video as well. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource that I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and the weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor. And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit 
etfmarketinsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. And now back to the show. All right, the next question I got was, hey, Cornell, here are the returns on my portfolio. And they sent me the returns. But how is my portfolio actually doing? Should I be concerned? What should I be expecting in terms of my returns? And then he goes on to say that a wealthy friend of mine once told me that if your guy isn't beating the market, get a new guy. Should I be thinking along these lines? Has it been long enough? So have I ridden this out long enough? Should I continue investing in these ETFs? So it sounds like this listener has some active investments where they have a fund manager and they are wondering how they are doing. Now, keep in mind, ETFs can be active as well. So just because it's an ETF, it doesn't mean that you're a passive index investor. You have to actually pick passive index ETFs in order to be an index investor. So let's tackle this one by one. The first part of the question is when they ask, how well am I doing? How is my portfolio doing? That is a very relative term. And I'll give you an example. So I had a family member approached me not too long ago before we had this drop in the markets recently, but when the markets were good, they came up to me and they said, Cornell, look, I've got stock X, whatever it was. And I got my statement and it got 10% growth last year. That's pretty good, right? And so they are happy. They're proud that they got this return. And I guess they wanted me to validate and say, hey, good job. Awesome. But then I think I disappointed them a bit because I said, it depends. You you can't just look at that return because it's all relative. So this happened when they told me this, when they showed me this. This was at a time where if you invested in something like an all equity asset allocation ETF, so I'm just going to say the market, for example, you would have gotten actually around 20% return in that year. That is really good. That was obviously a very good year. That's not typical. You're not going to get 20% every year by just being an index investor. But in that particular year, that was really good. And so while this person's 10% sounds great because 10%, it's high, it's respectable for sure. If you compare it to your next best alternative, which is just buying an asset allocation ETF, for example, then your investment actually underperformed. So If you look at historical averages, 10% is actually pretty good, very respectable. A lot of financial planners I've interviewed, myself included, when I do projections in terms of what I think my returns are going to generate on the equity side, I typically use 8% for my equities. And that is, I would say, the most common number that I've seen other financial planners that I respect used. So if you're getting 10%, that's awesome. That's above average. Congratulations. But if the market did 20%, and you're being active by buying this particular stock and it on your 10%, then actually you would have been much better off investing just in an asset allocation ETF. Plus the other really big component of this is that if you, because you invested that money in that one particular stock, you took on a lot more risks since with an asset allocation ETF, you're essentially investing across thousands of companies worldwide. So you're pretty much as diversified as one could get pretty much by doing that. Whereas if you're investing in an individual company, you're putting that money there instead, that's only one particular stock. So the opposite pretty much of diversification. So in this family member's case, they basically put all that money into one stock and they do have more than just that one stock in their portfolio, but still you're concentrating your money in that one investment versus spreading it out. 
So you're taking on way more risk. Now, because something could happen at that company, there's many things that could happen that are beyond your control, beyond the company's control that could make it falter. You're taking on a lot of risk. For example, there could be a leadership change. Maybe they had some amazing CEO who had an amazing executive team and they were driving all this growth. And then something happens at the company, the CEO leaves, takes a lot of the executives with them, as is often the case. And now the company is no longer performing that well. There's also factors beyond their control. For example, cost of inputs. We've all been hearing about inflation, sourcing issues, things of that nature. COVID obviously happened. That created some issues. Maybe that company isn't able to handle that very well. Maybe they weren't able to handle COVID. Maybe they are not able to handle whatever comes after COVID. It doesn't have to be a pandemic. It could be many other things, like the cost of their inputs going up, things of that nature. Maybe they just can't handle this thing that happened in the market that's beyond their control, and now they falter, and now they don't do so well. So all this to say that think of these sort of risks that you're taking when you're investing in an individual company versus your alternative, which is just being an index investor. So personally, if I'm taking on that risk of investing in an individual stock instead of something like the market through an asset allocation ETF, I don't want it to just match the index. I don't want my returns to just match the index. It should be beating it by far because I'm taking on that extra risk by being less diversified, by buying that stock instead of the index. So why would I take on all this extra risk of just being in one company versus thousands if I'm only going to match the index or if I'm only going to beat it by slightly? It's not a good deal anymore. So definitely think of it that way as well. Okay. So how do we compare your returns to an asset allocation ETF? Because going back to this question, he wants to know how am I doing Should I be happy? Should I be not happy about my investments? How do I decide? What can I research? What can I learn? So the first thing I would say is if you have an active fund, whether it's an active ETF or an active mutual fund, or you have some financial advisor that's putting you into active products, the first thing you want to do is make sure when you're comparing how they're doing versus the market, make sure you're factoring in your stock to bond mix. For example, you do not want to compare something, like I said, ZEQT, which is an all-equity asset allocation ETF, you don't want to compare that to another fund that's more of a balanced fund. And typically that means that it has a pretty significant bond component to it because obviously it can depend what happened in the markets, but typically based on expected returns, you would expect that the all-equity asset allocation ETF would outperform the balanced fund because the balanced fund has a lot more bonds in it. And those, while they dampen the volatility of your portfolio, they have a lower expected return. So essentially, you aren't comparing apples to apples if you're comparing one fund, which is all equity, which has a higher expected return, but also higher volatility versus another fund, which is, let's say, 50% bonds and 50% equities, which again, will have lower volatility, but a lot lower expected return. So make sure you're comparing apples to apples that the stock to bond mix is the same for both investments. Okay. Now, a quick little note about a trap that I don't want you falling into is that someone could be trying to sell you an active fund. If you go to talk to someone that sells these, they get a commission or they get some sort of bonus for selling you these funds. You need to be very careful because when they're selling you that active fund, they could compare their all equity fund, let's say, to a balanced fund. Maybe you have a balanced fund and then they compare it to their all equity fund and they say, look how much better my fund did compared to 
your index ETF or to your other funds. Look how much better we did. But did they really, if equities had a good year and they typically perform better than bonds, like I said, then of course their investments are going to do better than your more conservative portfolio. And so it's much easier for them to give you the sales pitch and build a sort of sales story about how, look, ditch your index ETF come with us. We'll manage everything for you. We'll do it for you. Yeah, you're paying higher fees, but look how much better we did with our investments. Okay. But again, if they're have a, if they all equity and you're 50% bonds, then it's going to be very difficult for you to outperform that all equity fund. All right. So the other thing you want to look for is make sure you're looking at the same time frame. And so a tool that I... There's two tools I'll give you that are both free that I like to use for it. One that I've used quite a bit in the past is actually Yahoo Finance because in Yahoo Finance, what you can do is you could look up that ETF and you can actually specify what time period you want to look at. So a lot of times when you look up a particular ETF or some fund, they'll say, okay, how did it do in the past five days? How did it do in the past year or three years, five years, et cetera, different sort of buckets of time. But what's nice to do is if you're saying, I want to see how mine compared from this specific date to today, you can put that in and then you click on the button to see that chart in full view. And what you'll notice is if you hover your mouse over today's date, it will show you in the top left corner what the percentage growth or decline was since you bought that investment from the date that you specified. And so I do find that to be pretty useful because if I'm saying I bought this investment on day X, like a random day, let's say July 5th of 2023 or whatever. So you can put that in and then you hover your mouse over the end of that And then you'll actually see the percentage growth. And so that way, if you're comparing a specific investment over a period of time, that can help you with that. Another free tool that I really like to use is Morningstar. So the Morningstar, if you just Google Morningstar Canada, you can look up different funds, different ETFs that way as well. I will mention I'm not affiliated with Morningstar or Yahoo Finance in any sort of way. I don't sell asset allocation ETFs either. There's no conflict of interest there or anything like that. This is just, I'm letting you know what I personally use and the reasons for it. And my reasons are based on the 100 of interviews that I've done at this point of different experts in Canada. Okay. So why do I like these free tools? You can see returns easily for a given time period that you enter. And one thing that you do want to be careful of is that when you look up the performance of a particular investment on just about any site, typically they will not include dividends in that. So it's just showing you the price of that investment. So this is something you really need to remember, especially if you're investing in something that generates a lot of dividends. Maybe the investment actually didn't go up as much, but maybe it's yielding you very significant dividends. So again, you want to compare apples to apples. You don't want to compare some investment that has really has had really high growth to an investment that's had maybe not as much growth, but maybe it gives off a lot of dividends. And so maybe once you factor that in, once you factor in those dividends, so now you're looking at the total return, maybe actually that lower growth investment actually did better once all the dividends are factored in. And so the resource, the free resource that I like to use for that is Morningstar Canada, because there, there is a section, if you look up a particular fund, where it will say total returns. And total return is basically the growth, so the capital gains or capital losses, plus the dividends. And ultimately, that's what you care about. You want your total return. You don't care about just the price of that particular investment. You do want to factor in all the other income that it generated. Again, when you're comparing how your investment did versus, let's say, the market or versus another investment.
Okay, and then jumping into this last part of this question, he says, a wealthy friend of mine once told me that if your guy isn't beating the market, get a new guy. Should I be thinking along these lines? Has it been long enough? In this case, he's referring to, has he been waited long enough for these investments to recover because he feels like they're underperforming right now? Should I continue investing in these ETFs? All right, so like I mentioned earlier, I personally just hold the ETFs that make up an asset allocation ETF. So I basically just buy the market. I'm a pure passive index investor in my own portfolio. And this way, I never have to worry about finding the right guy or the right gal since I can just enjoy the increases in the market. Now, I'll never get some crazy home run like getting in early on the next Amazon or the next Tesla or whatever. But that's okay as I can just buy a passive portfolio and live my life, not worrying if some fund manager is beating the market or not, not trying to pick stocks and trying to find undervalued stocks. And so sure, if you have done this comparison and you feel, okay, I'm paying these higher fees, this higher MER for these active investments and they have underperformed the index and they seem to be doing so consistently for a long period of time then okay, maybe you start researching to find someone else. But I did want to really highlight the fact that you don't actually have to play that game at all about trying to find the right gal or gal, so the right fund manager, the right stock picker, or trying to be one yourself. You don't actually have to play that game at all because you could just be a passive index investor and not have to worry about any of that. So again, if your passion is to find these diamonds in the rough or whatever the expression is, then okay, all the power to you. I wish you the best of luck and hopefully you become very good at it and you make lots of money and you make more than me because I'm just a passive investor. I really sincerely wish you all the best, but just remember that that actually does take work. It's not a passive thing where the money just rolls in. You actually do have to put the work up front and there are no guarantees and nobody gets it right 100% of the time. So you are going to have to endure some losses for sure, but hopefully your gains at the end of the day do end up being higher than the losses if you take this active route. Okay. So again, I did want to point you to that episode that I did quite recently, two episodes ago with SMP Dow Jones. It was really neat. It was the actual creator of the S&P 500, the Dow Jones Index. These are the guys that you see in movies and everything. I actually got to interview them on the show, which was amazing as a business nerd, former business grad it was really surreal. And it was nice to talk to them about the SPIVA reports that they publish, which talk about this whole active versus passive investing debate. What have they found? How often do these managers actually beat the market? So this can hopefully help you decide whether you want to play that game or not in terms of being an active investor, or do you just want to do total market index investing and be done with it? Like in my case. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. These are our hiring goals, they say. They're very aggressive. But when everyone looks to you, you're calm. Why? Because you know you don't need a miracle. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful matching tools that find you matched candidates fast. On Indeed, over 85% of employers find quality candidates whose resumes match their job description the moment that they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. 
One of the things that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because the moment you post a job on Indeed, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes match your job description, and you can even invite them to apply right away. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the show. All right. Our next question is from someone whose name I'm actually going to change because I don't know how anonymous they want it. So I'm going to call this person John. Now, this individual, it's pretty neat. He was actually on the national bobsleigh team here in Canada. So really, really neat. But unfortunately, he's hit some hard times in terms of being out of work. And he's having a hard time getting a job, it sounds like. And he is also in debt. So his first question was, Cornell, what would you do in a situation to have income coming in as soon as possible? Now, obviously, the main answer is, well, try getting a job. But I realized that, okay, you're applying for jobs, you're putting it out there, but now you're waiting for a reply and hopefully something happens on that front. But then what do you do while you are waiting? And my advice in that area would be to consider doing some sort of freelance work, doing something that you're good at while you're looking for that job. So don't just apply for the job and wait, which I see some people do. And I'm thinking, especially now these days, it's easier than ever with the technology and the advancements to generate some extra money on the side. So at least consider doing that. Now, when you're tackling that, I would ask yourself, what unique skills do you have that sets you apart from, let's say, 90% of the population? You don't have to be the best in the world at it, but what is it that you know more about than most? And so I don't know you personally, but from the information you gave me, you did say you're on the national bobs or you were on the national bobsleigh team. So just based on that one piece of information alone, I can say that, okay, you probably know more than the average person about things like nutrition, losing weight, not gaining fat, building muscle performing in the high pressure situations when you're competing, things of that nature. So that's something that's very unique to you. You have some credibility pretty much right away because you're on the national bobsleigh team. And so in order to actually get to that level, I assume you have to have your nutrition in check. I assume you've got to know a thing or two about building muscle, all of these things that you already know. And you've got that nice credibility builder of actually being on the national team, which right away lets people trust you that you actually know a bit of what you're talking about because you've experienced it. It's not like you just read 10 blog posts about nutrition and now you're going to be a nutritionist. So that is something that I would definitely do. And if I was looking for, let's say, a fitness coach, I would much rather hire you versus go to my local gym and just roll the dice. And hopefully I get someone that's decent and that actually know what they're talking about. So how does this apply to everybody else listening who is not a national athlete? Again, I would ask the question, what are you already better at and more knowledgeable at than the average person? And you could use that to actually do some freelance. Now, I did want to give out one warning, which is what I like to call this passive income trap. Okay. So when you go online and you start researching all these things, you're going to see all types of courses being pitched to you about passive income, how, oh, just be the next big YouTube star, 
make some videos. You're going to make lots of money overnight. It's going to be easy, yada, yada, yada. And it's all passive income. The whole passive income thing. And like I said earlier, unless you're doing something like passive index investing, there really isn't passive income per se. You still have to basically put the work in upfront to get this thing that you now call passive income. So for example, someone might say, oh, if you write a book, you get you make sales for it years later, or you get royalties or whatever. That's awesome. That's passive income. How passive is it? What's your definition of passive? Because in order to write that book, it probably took you several years, at least a year probably to write that book. And then now you're hoping that once that book gets launched, that you're actually going to make some money off it, but there's no guarantee of that at all. One of my best friends, actually, his name is Matt. The way he worded it, which I really like, is that with freelancing, the difference between freelancing and this passive income, so to speak, which like I said, I would argue is not really passive, is that with freelance, you get paid right now. You get the money right away and then you do the work. However, with passive income, it's you get paid nothing now, you put in all the work up front, and hopefully you get paid later. So I'm not knocking passive income, but keep in mind that you don't have to take that route. And in your particular case, you said you have no income right now coming in at all. And you mentioned that you're in debt as well. And so you don't really have the time, I would say, to think, okay, it's okay if I don't make any money for the next year, because by year two, hopefully I'll make some with my passive business. You seem to be in a situation where you're bleeding now financially because you're in debt and you don't have any income coming in. So our job now is to stop the bleeding. And the quickest way to do that, of course, is get a job. But while you're waiting for those interviews and for that to pan out, you can do something on the freelance side where you're getting paid right away. Now, your next question was ways you would that I would tackle to get out of debt as soon as possible if you don't qualify for a loan or debt consolidation at the bank. So the first thing I would do is I would trim my expenses as much as possible. I would definitely track my spending. Is there anything that's not critical that you really don't need that you could cut? How do you track that? You could use something like Mint. It is free. And by free, I mean, you don't pay money, but then there's the whole privacy thing, right? Nothing is actually free, but you don't actually have to pay anything up front. But that's what you can use to track your expenses if you want by categories to try to find that or just look at your statements or use a spreadsheet to figure that out. Again, we're trying to stop the bleeding. So is there any area that we can cut to stop the bleeding? And once you've got the expenses thing figured out, the other part, of course, is the income, right? So there's really two main things. People sometimes overcomplicate the whole personal finance thing. And really what it comes down to is there's your income, which is bucket one and bucket two is expenses. So have we optimized things on the expense front? Okay. If you have, great. That's definitely something, a lever that you can pull, but there's only so much you can save. Eventually you just have to eat something. You don't want to be eating craft dinner every day. So after you've reached a certain level of optimization on the expense front, now focus on the income piece. So I would say, okay, we need to stop the bleeding. So get a job ASAP, but also do this freelancing work while you are waiting for that job. But once you get the job, you could still continue this freelancing work to get out of debt even quicker. And one thing that I would say as well is try local as well. So the online space is crowded. Obviously, there's opportunities in it still. However, definitely don't neglect or forget about just doing something locally, right? So how are you going to compete with someone? Like, let's say we did the fitness thing that I just mentioned. How are you going to compete with some fitness guru on YouTube that has a million subscribers already? That's going to be challenging for you. But in your local area, wherever it is you live, I'm sure that there are certain friends or connections that you have already in that neighborhood. And you could just start by letting your friends and other people you know, even everyone that you meet, you could say, hey, just so you know, I'm a, let's say, a personal trainer. If you're ever looking for something, you can get a free trial here or discount here for your first time. 
something of that nature. So definitely try local because it is a lot less competitive and people are willing to pay a premium if you're actually there with them physically instead of just like some online video course. Okay. Last part that he had was about building several streams of income online. Do I have any strategies or advice in that area? Yes, I would say definitely you can do things online. It can be a bit crowded in certain areas, especially if you, particularly if you're starting from scratch. So just keep in mind that yes, you can do lots of generate lots of income online, but it typically does take time, especially if you're trying to do something like a course or start a business from scratch as opposed to just doing freelancing type work. Be careful as well because there's people in other countries where they're willing to take a lot less money to maybe do the same kind of work that you are doing. So be very careful of that. And that's why I said consider the whole local thing because that may be a good opportunity for you as well. The other thing to consider too is while we're talking about the whole online space, you could work for a company remotely as horrible as COVID is. It did shift things a lot for companies where now they are more willing to have remote employees. And so you don't have to look for a local company anymore to take you on. The world is your oyster, so to speak. For example, there are, in your particular case, you're a fitness person. Okay. So there are lots of companies, for example, in the US, they could pay you US dollars to help their company with something fitness or let's say nutrition related, whatever it is that you are very good at in that space. I know I've hired a company online in the US to help me with my fitness when I was trying to get everything nailed down. There's no reason why you in Canada could not work for a company like that, for example, assuming you're qualified for it. And like I said, with your experience, I imagine you could probably get something in there. So definitely expand your horizons in terms of not just looking at, okay, I'm in Toronto, what are the companies in Toronto? Or maybe you're somewhere remotely you could pretty much open it up. You speak English, okay, lots of Europe, US, Canada. You can look for companies in that area as well. All right, awesome. So I hope that was helpful. All right, our last question for today is from Troy. Troy is currently in a high-fee mutual fund. He is paying 1.85% for that, which is the MER, which is really high. The fee, just as a comparison on something like an asset allocation ETF, like a ZEQT, which I've mentioned already in this episode, is 0.20%, way lower. If you actually do the calculations, that means this high fee mutual fund that he is currently in is 9.25 times more expensive. Okay, so huge, (laughs) 9.25 times more expensive. I actually have a spreadsheet in my course where you can use to calculate all of that out. But yeah, I just want to throw that out there because this is a big enough number that you should be concerned about. And it's definitely should be a red flag that this is an area to optimize for certain. All right. So moving on, he's saying that now he is worried about this because one, the return is negative. And so he's asking, do I need to just wait it out? That currently the investment is down $2,000. And just to give some context, he told me what this investment is, and it's very much a fixed income type of investment which includes a lot of bonds. And when the interest rates went up, the bonds went down significantly. And so this is where that is coming from. And so he is in now a tough situation because he has these investments. It's down. Then he finds out that he's actually paying a lot of money for it. And so what do you do? Do you wait for it to go back up? Do you sell it right away because of these high fees that you're paying? This is the essence of the question, so to speak. So his first question is, the return is negative. Do I need to just wait it out? It's down around $2,000. My answer to that is no, do not wait it out because every moment you wait is a moment that you're paying the 9.25 times more in fees. If you're looking at two products and one is nine times more, over nine times more expensive, 
And that's pretty guaranteed because the fee is there. It's posted. It's not, oh, the fee is going to be a lower percentage depending how the market does. That's not how it works. It's just on something like an asset allocation ETF, you're paying 0.2%. On this thing, you're paying 1.85. So that fee is set. It's guaranteed that you're going to be paying that on your investments. I would say stop the bleeding on the fee side and just get rid of this thing and get a comparable ETF. His follow-up question to that is, am I wasting money waiting it out based on the MER, the management fee? Will I make it up by going with an ETF? So first thing I'll say is there is never a guarantee that you'll make it all back in a short time frame. So in his question, he mentioned that he is looking to have that money back in one year. So we're going to talk about that because that is a very short time frame and an ETF like a fixed income ETF might actually not be the ideal investment for something like that when you need the money in a year. Okay. But did want to mention that there is never really a guarantee, especially when timeframes are that short. Two, if you did choose that you do want to stick to an investment like an ETF, like some sort of fund as opposed to a GIC or a high interest savings account, you could get a comparable passive index ETF that serves the same purpose. So what I would do is I would look at the benchmark. Those are the indexes that the fund compares itself to because the fund you hold is most comparable to those indexes. So if you look up the fund that you own, and this is for anybody listening, not just for Troy, if you have a certain investment, you can pull that up, go to the actual fund provider site. You'll see the MER there and you'll see a lot of other facts, including the benchmark. And benchmark is what they compare themselves to. So in Troy's case, what I would do is I would look at the benchmark, which I did do, and it's a lot of basically fixed income type indexes, essentially. And so you could replicate that with an ETF that is at a much, much lower cost. So that's personally what I would do in that situation if I decided that I still want to stick with a fund like, a, like an ETF. Okay. Now, I will mention to that this fund I already said it's a fixed income fund, which had a lot of bonds and the bonds got hit really hard when the interest rate went up. And so I understand how this can be a difficult situation for Troy, as well as anybody else that has held bonds. And they went through this interest rate increase because you, in his case, and I'm sure in a lot of Canadians who are going through this as well, you essentially bought a fund that ended up, in his case, ended up losing several thousand dollars. And now you learn that you actually are paying too high of a fee for it as well. But you would probably want to make that money back from the fund before you sell it. That's the, I imagine the thinking, right? Is okay, I bought this thing, it's too expensive. I lost money on it. At least let me make the money back before I go off and sell it. So I get psychologically how that might feel nice. But I would say, do not do that. I would say, do the switch as soon as possible because like I mentioned earlier, you are paying that over nine times more in fees as you're waiting for things to recoup. So I would not, like I said, stop the bleeding now as opposed to just you're getting bled constantly by this higher fee the entire time, okay? The other big thing to understand is that if you are going to buy something similar to that high fee mutual fund, but as a passive ETF, then you are getting those investments at that reduced price now as well when you buy the lower fee ETF, okay? So in other words, you are essentially selling an asset that dropped in value if you sell this fund, but you are buying a similar asset which has also dropped in value. And so you may have lost some money on that initial investment, like the $2,000 you mentioned, but you're also now getting that new investment 
at a lower price as well. Because if you're swapping this for something comparable, then you're swapping it to something that also has bonds and the bonds are lower than they were before because of the interest rate hikes. Think of it that way. So your initial investment, like I said, had a lot of bonds, bonds took a hit, but now you're buying the lower fee investment that also includes a lot of bonds, which are at those reduced prices also. So it's not like you just lost $2,000 by selling it right now. It's not like you're going to sell the investment and then use that money towards a new car or some material good the next day. No, you are instead taking that whole investment and you're using it to buy something that's very similar at a comparable price, but it has a much, much lower fee. And so don't think of it as a $2,000 loss, okay? You're essentially doing a swap and you're securing the guarantee that you're paying a lower fee. Okay, I hope that helps. His next question about that was, does it matter if I'm hopeful all this money goes into a house in 2024 anyway? Okay, so it has a lot less of an impact since you are using that money so soon. So this is right now, it's June 2023. So depending when you use it in 2024, let's call it you want this money in a year. Okay, if you need this money in a year, then I would actually question whether it should be in a bond type ETF like this in the first place. For example, when we had the major interest rate increase, some bond ETFs dropped 10% around there, which is obviously very significant for the safe, so to speak, safer portion of your portfolio. Therefore, I would say that if you do need the money over a short-term period, like a year, one year I would consider very short-term, then me personally, I would either put it in a high interest savings account or a one-year GIC if you are okay locking in the money for one year. So the GIC that's locked in versus a hydro savings account, you can take it out at any time. But with a GIC, sometimes you can get a higher rate than a high interest savings account. So you want to look at both of those two options saying, okay, will I get more by getting a GIC instead of a high interest savings account with the negative being that that money is locked in for a year. So if you're looking to buy a house, but you know for a certain you won't need that money for a year and the GIC rate is much higher, then you might consider going with a GIC instead. And for everybody listening, if you are looking for a good high interest savings account or a GIC, the ones that I use myself and that I recommend to friends and family is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. So buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. Definitely check that out. That's what I personally use. And if you actually do end up opening up a high interest savings account with them, it helps support the show as well. But like I said, this is what I use and it's what I've been recommending for years now at this point as well. Okay. Follow-up question is, does moving it to something like Trade or Wealth Simple to just buy the ETF make sense? So I would say, yes, I would definitely be opening up a discount brokerage account, whether it's through someplace like Trade or Wealth Simple, like you said, or Qtrade is another good one that I've heard good things about. This way you can buy the ETFs yourself and get that lowest possible fee. Now, even if you do not have a lot of money now to invest, I don't know how much, how big your entire portfolio is, but just for anybody listening, even if you don't have a giant portfolio, Having a discount brokerage account is something that you will be using eventually more and more as you get older and have more and more money to invest. And so I do always encourage people to open up an account with a discount brokerage as soon as possible, even if your portfolio is still very small or even non-existent at the moment, because you want to learn and get comfortable doing investing while the amount of money that you have invested is small. It does create a lot more anxiety when you have to do it with a large sum of money right away. So for example, think of it this way. If you're just getting started and you've got your first $1,000 to invest or even heck, $200 to invest, okay? That is a lot less stress. You're going to be a lot less nervous. You're going to be much more calm, especially if the market falls 30%. You're going to be a much more of a cool cucumber if it falls by that amount. If you've only got, let's say, $200 invested versus 
let's take the other extreme where you got a $1 million inheritance and now you're trying to learn how to, and trying to figure all this out and how to use a discount brokerage and all that. Obviously, then you're going to be a giant stress machine at that point because the stakes are so much higher. So it's much easier if you're starting off small so that even if you make a mistake, it's not with some catastrophically large amount of money. Now, I will say that mistakes are avoidable, particularly if you're an index investor. It's not like you're stock picking where you make mistakes. Index investing is much, much easier. And if you're being careful, then I don't really see a reason why you even would make a mistake if you're being an index investor. But still, from a pure anxiety reduction standpoint, I do recommend learning how to invest through a discount brokerage as early as possible to get that learning under your belt while the stakes and the pressure are low so that as you make more money, you get promotions, all that, you're investing more and more, maybe you get inheritance down the road, whatever the case may be. By that point, once there's more zeros to your net worth number, at least at that point, you've already been doing this for probably several years at this point. And so you already know what to do and you don't get so anxious doing it anymore. All right. So I hope that was super helpful. Feel free to reply with follow-up questions. And I hope you enjoyed the Q&A. And if you would like to submit a question, the easiest way to do so is just sign up anywhere for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca. And when you do that, you'll get taken to a page where you can leave a comment with your question or your questions. And also when you do that, I'll email you my guide on the top personal finance and investing tools that I personally use. And so at that point, you'll also have my email because I just emailed you the guide. And then you can also just reply to that email if you want with your question and then I can work on incorporating that into a future episode of the show. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. Please give me some feedback. I think this is maybe the first time we did an episode like this, or definitely we haven't done one for a long time. So do really want to know how much you like this and doing this every once in a while, as opposed to just me only doing interviews with other experts all the time. I think it would be good to do both because this way you get your questions answered, plus you get to hear from other experts, plus you get to hear how I do it because I actually take what I learned from these experts and apply it myself. And I think that will be of most value to you because you're getting questions answered plus my angle plus other experts angle. But let me know. I would love to hear what you think and I will keep tweaking the show accordingly so that you get the most value from it as possible and so that it's the way that you like. All right. So I hope to hear from you. All right. Thanks for tuning in. And just a quick reminder that I'm in the process of creating a free six-day mini course showing you the details of how I personally invest. Again, just to keep everything transparent, I show you what investments I buy, the tools I use, and how I optimize my investments and finances to pay the least in unnecessary fees and taxes. To get it, you can just sign up anywhere for free over at Build Wealth Canada. .ca and I'll send you the course the moment it's ready and it might even be ready now depending on when you listen to this episode. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it with someone that you think may find it useful and of course, leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is always super super appreciated as well. I'd like to end with a big thanks to two of our sponsors who apart from my investing course, literally keep the entire Build Wealth Canada podcast and website free for you. Do you know why asset allocation ETFs have become so popular? Asset allocation explains over 90% of the variation in a portfolio's quarterly returns. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification, and they're also low-cost and simple to use. 
These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs and you can learn more at BMOETFs.com. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And it streamlines hiring with powerful matching tools that find you matched candidates fast. On Indeed, over 85% of employers find quality candidates whose resume matches their job description the moment that they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. One of the things that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. It gets you one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with quality candidates on the platform. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. And Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering eight times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest 2019. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 